0: Benjamin, it seems to me, if there is something that's clear, he's not saying wake up and just do divine violence.
1: is What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Owen. Hey. Lillian. Hi. And Will. Yo. And for today's show, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Ashley Borer. Hey, Ashley. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ashley. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Ashley is a scholar and activist who lives in Chicago and an assistant professor of gender and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, She's written extensively on decolonial feminist theory, Marxism, and the history of political philosophy, with articles appearing in Hypatia, New Labor Forum, political theology, historical materialism, and, and more. Last year, she published her first book, Uh Marxism, and Intersectionality, Race, Gender, Class, and Sexuality Under Contemporary Capitalism with Columbia. And as I understand, she's got a second book on the history of capitalism on the way. Uh, In addition, she co-hosts a podcast called Pedagogies for Peace with Justin DeLeon, and she's public philosophy editor for the blog of the APA. And that's just her academic credentials. I haven't even gotten into any of her activism, which is no less impressive. And she's one of my best and oldest friends Mm. in the academy and mine i'm very happy to have you on the show
2: i'm so happy to be here it's so cute to be in a room full of lovelies
1: (laughs) (laughs) so for today's episode ashley asked us to read walter benjamin's essay critique of violence Uh, so i'm going to do a little bit of work to try to set it up and we'll see where things go from there so first of all this is the first piece that we've read for the podcast from the frankfurt school The Frankfurt School, when it's not being invoked as an anti-Semitic dog whistle for reactionary conspiracy theorists, refers to a group (laughs) of social theorists and critical philosophers initially associated with the Institute for Social Research at the Goethe University Frankfurt starting in the 1920s. So that means most prominently Max Horkheimer, Theodor Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, Erich Fromm, and others, including Siegfried Krakauer, Alfred Sondrethel, Ernst Bloch, and, of course, Walter Benjamin. There is significant diversity among these thinkers, uh, and they drew on a wide variety of traditions, such as Marxist social theory, Hegelian idealist philosophy, Freudian psychoanalysis, and empirical sociology. But in one form or another, they all sought to contribute to the project of elaborating a critical theory explicitly concerned with identifying and encouraging the conditions for the possibility of emancipatory social transformation, a project that in their time was spurred on by the unprecedented rise of totalitarian fascism in Europe and the apparent dead ends of classical Marxist theory, which no longer seemed adequate to the moment. Now, Benjamin is an eclectic and peculiar thinker by just about any standard. Born in 1892, Benjamin spent most of his life in Germany. He made some significant and original contributions to historical materialism, innovations perhaps made possible by his singular combination of theoretical influences. His thinking often involves in I want to call uneasy, but highly productive synthesis of Marxist critical theory, German idealism, and Jewish mysticism. And I think it's possible that we'll end up talking about some Kabbalistic themes in our discussion today. Tragically, Benjamin took his own life in 1940 on the French-Spanish border while fleeing the Nazis. In the years that followed, he'd become well-known for essays such as the 1936 work of art in the age of technical reproduction and the 1940 theses on the philosophy of history, sometimes also called on the concept of history, both of which are classics and bangers, and I wouldn't be surprised if we come back to them in later episodes. But for today, we're looking Mm -hmm. at this earlier piece, uh, 1921's Critique of Violence. Now, it's a really complicated essay. Basically... It seeks to determine the nature of the relationship between violence and the law. Benjamin highlights a series of antinomies, or unavoidable contradictions, that arise whenever we try to work out what that relationship is in terms of the traditions of natural law and positive law. This is because both of these traditions, he suggests, share some common dogmatic presuppositions, and especially the idea that there is a reciprocal relationship of justification between means and ends so that legitimate means justify ends and legitimate ends justify means. But that framing makes it seem as though violence is something external to the law as such, so that the only question about the relationship between the two that you can really ask is whether particular instances of violence are historically sanctioned, that is, whether they're recognized as legitimate or not. But Benjamin thinks that that's an inadequate conception. He sees a much more intimate an essential connection between violence and the law. From there, Benjamin distinguishes between two forms of violence, what he calls mythic violence on the one hand and divine violence on the other. These two forms are distinguished by their totally antithetical, opposed relationship to the law. Mythic violence aims at the establishment and maintenance of the law, now understood as a kind of arbitrary power of political and economic domination that presents itself as natural, necessary, and fated whereas divine violence aims at the destruction of the law itself. And he explicitly aligns the latter with the revolutionary proletarian general strike. So there's so much more to say. The essay is extremely dense and rich. Uh, There are, for instance, the two functions of mythic violence as lawmaking and law-preserving, with the two functions collapsing in certain cases, such as the death penalty and the mobilization of police power. There's this distinction that Benjamin takes from Georges Sorel, between political strikes on the one hand and the revolutionary general strike on the other. And there are these weird categories of fate and guilt, which loom over the back half of the analysis. But I'm going to leave off here and turn it over to you, Ashley. So, you know, what what is it that you find compelling and useful about this essay? Why, why are we drawn to it today?
2: Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to say may be just about my own coming to this essay and my kind of constant coming back to the essay, is that in a certain sense, um, I think it's Walter Benjamin that made me an an abolitionist. And I encountered Benjamin, I encountered the Frankfurt School really early in my philosophical thinking and reading. Um, I took a class on the Frankfurt School (laughs) as a little baby philosopher in the first semester of my second year of undergrad. And encountered this essay, which I think really set me up to later be able to hear political claims about the abolition of the state, the abolition of the police, and the abolition of military and borders in ways that when I first encountered this text, I was not like politically there yet. But philosophically, I think what Benjamin really gives us here is a robust, deep, philosophical exposition for how each one of those institutions is so deeply and irrevocably committed to violence, has this kind of core commitment to violence in a certain sense, like cannot be what it is without its founding and refounding of violence. Sort of being taken along with Benjamin that far then allowed me to be really radically politically transformed when I encountered movements, social movements for the abolition of borders and the police, prisons, et cetera. And that's why I think maybe talking about this essay in particular and Benjamin more broadly in this moment is really important, right? We live in a moment where the call for the abolition of borders and the abolition of cops and prisons is perhaps more mainstream or at least being talked about more than ever before. And at the same time, we're living in a time of the rise of the radical right and a kind of new reincarnation of fascism, which is also the kind of political opponent in a certain sense of Benjamin's thought, even in this kind of early essay, right? Even though he's not confronting a fully developed Nazism in 1921, he's certainly seeing the hallmarks politically and philosophically of its rise and really seeking to interrupt um, fascism and the insufficiency, I think, of a lot of left political moments for him, particularly in Germany, of being able to confront and extirpate the kind of violence oppression and exploitation that are really central to the way the modern state works that will then kind of get taken into its most grotesque and horrifying form with the rise of Nazism. Mm. That's, that's why I wanted to talk about this essay. <laughs>
0: That was great. So, you know, also I just want to say explicitly, Gil, that was a really great job introducing the essay. Listening to you talk, I was like, actually, I feel like I might have, um, you know, my fingers in some of this—not not not all of it, but some of it. So, you know, I guess a small intervention I want to make on what I was getting from this essay is he calls it a critique of violence, and so it seems part of what he wants to do. So, what are the criteria we should have if we're going to understand this object that we call violence and its its relate our relationship to? It. And so one might think, you know, if we want to, you know, abstract a little bit back out from from the essay and be sort of plainly, is one might imagine that the aim of a political movement or a political struggle is to mitigate violence. And if you see violence as a sort of external alien imposition, you know, an unfortunate um accident that emerges in a polity, then you might think that the point is we need to get the state in a particular type of formation in order to reduce it to a minimum. That you know it is law. That are necessary to check this external force of violence. But Benjamin wants to make the claim that violence is actually imminent to the the constitution of a state or to use um, what you were talking about, things like borders. And so I actually think that this, you know, asks us to change our perspective of what it is we are doing when we talk about violence. If you think violence is something external, then it's something that you don't really have control over and all you can do is mitigate it. But if it's imminent, then you have to ask if the very tools you are using to mitigate it actually end up reproducing it, actually you need to call on on it in order to be effective. And that's what brings him, I think, to lawmaking and law-preserving, whether we can have law without some sort of implicit coercion of violence to be effective do I sound completely off base there does that sound like something that might be going on in the essay (laughs) no totally
2: right I think this essay and exactly what you say right is part of Benjamin's commitment to like why why doesn't liberalism work right why can't liberalism ever make good on any of its sort of false and empty promises and why can't radicals or revolutionaries, leftists who actually care about human beings, why can't we rely on the state as the ultimate vehicle of societal transformation? And Benjamin says, well, because the liberal state in its modern uh in, in its modern rise is fundamentally and absolutely committed to violence in several ways, and it's committed to a form of violence that always is going to have ever more violence as it sort of backstop, right? And then he goes through in, I think, a, a bit of an or or implicative way, a kind of critique of the social contract tradition and all of the ways that parliamentarianism sort of plays this out for him. And really what I think the object of the critique here is, is that like there is not anything we can do within the system as it is that is going to liberate us, redeem us, you know, save us mm. Whatever your favorite language is there, right? Because the system itself is the problem. And that's mm. why all of these discourses that we get out of liberal political philosophy, like positive law, like natural law, for example, like evaluations of political programs on the basis of a sort of means or ends calculus, or even what we would talk about as something like individual ethical action why none of those paradigms are ever going to get us free because they're all sort of circular in their recommitment and refoundation inside of this liberal political system it's sort of going to be like the you know the snake eating its own tail and so instead right i mean and maybe we haven't gotten to this part of the essay yet but like the goal then is like so how do we say like no fuck all of this shit we need something else and that something else right is going to be divine violence And the revolutionary general strike.
3: So, maybe before we get to divine violence, then, I wanted to ask some of the parts (laughs) of the critique of violence that I find so provocative are because you're right. I mean, what you describe, there are times, though, where it sounds like there's a the, the ethos of the essay is just anti state or anti institution, like Tukur, because he does claim that institutions, by their very nature, not just the state, but institutions, by their very nature, have this element of lawmaking and law-preserving violence. But then he takes these digs at like anarchists, right? And and the idea that, or at least what he says, a certain kind of anarchism, right? A kind of anarchism that wants to do without constraint, that wants to do without law, that thinks that that, you know... And he says, listen, that you can't operate in social reality without those elements of, of constraint and law. So, okay, so th- what I'm getting to is that it seems like... A lot of times I feel like when we read Benjamin and we read this distinction between kind of m- what he calls mythic violence and divine violence the details of that distinction aren't super important yet, but we, we oppose the lawmaking and, and law preserving violence as like bad and the divine violence as like good, right? As the disruptive like rupture. But then, yeah, it does seem that there's a part of him that, that insists that, well, you know, there is an element of politics or of the creation of political order as such that involves this lawmaking and law preserving violence. And so the aim isn't, uh, you know, he makes fun of pacifists all the time, right? The aim isn't, I'm speaking crudely, isn't to eliminate violence altogether, right? But it's to kind of, I guess, isolate and reflect on its function within institutions, within the creation of order, and to to conceptually isolate and be able to problematize it and discuss it for, as what it is, rather than to eliminate it. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the things that's really hard to talk about in terms of divine violence, is that for Benjamin, this is a wholly retroactive concept. You can't be like, cool, I'm going to implement some divine violence today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, toward the end of the essay, he even says like, whether something has or has not been an actual instance of divine violence is in a certain sense, never for certain. We can never live in the certainty that our revolutionary struggle or our movement has actually been that, right? And part Mm. of that is because what divine violence really means is violence as pure means, right? It can't be subordinated to any sort of ends-directed calculus. So when we think about politics often, and I think this is Benjamin's critique of of the left in in many ways is, like, we often think about taking over the political apparatus in order to lessen harm, lessen suffering, Hmm. pass different kinds of, of protective legislation, or even to change, like, the operation of the institutions, right? And this is Benjamin before his Marxist turn. This is Benjamin when he's still very deeply involved in a kind of, I don't know, like, intellectual anarchist milieu, his worry here is that there is something central about institutions of collective life that are always going to have resort to either law founding or law preserving violence. And so I don't think his question is so much like, how do we get to, right? How do we do the divine violence part? But it's actually more like, Yo, activists, social movements, communists, anarchists, like, be careful, right? Be careful about what you wish for and be careful about Hmm. the process of implementing your politics actually deeply affects what they are. And so in our desire to build collective institutions, we might want to do that anyway, right? Like we might have to engage in the process of transforming the world collectively, building institutions, building practices etc. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think Benjamin's response here is not, don't ever do that, give up on collective liberation and, you know, building an alternative world. It's more like, be attentive and self-critical about the potential abuses and violences that even the most well-meaning movements of liberation can, when they get I don't know, when they get cocky, when they become too assured of themselves, when they are absolutely mm. sure that they are, you know, to get a little bit messianic, right? When they're the instantiation of God or divinity or redemption, salvation, pick your favorite, the way that they're liable to replay the very kinds of political violences that they say they're opposing. That's,
1: yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really that's great helpful, <laughs> Yeah, and also like, so, I mean, one of the things then that, kind of aim of the critique too is to to call into question precisely the way in which like liberalism seemingly constitutively, but at least like in all empirical cases, like disavows this relationship to violence as like a founding fun, as an, in its founding and preservative functions. Mm-hmm. Right. So that like what comes to appear as yeah, as like natural and this is why I think he calls it mythic, right. This like mythology of like a pure foundation without recourse to a violence Uh, Is characteristic of this sort of liberal state order with all of its attendant police power in these institutions, and like we're not well served as people in you know invested in the development of more more free, more emancipatory collective institutions in repeating that kind of disavowal, right? Like there's something about that. Yeah, I mean, like one question then, I guess, like at the at this level of analysis is like why is it that violence has this kind of originary or constitutive character why isn't there a possibility of like a founding of an order without it you know it seems to be like this is an argument that he's making and i guess i'm like wondering like what what grounds that does that make sense
4: right and like what does god have to do with it like i (laughs) i mean i appreciate you're kind of like i I don't know if I'm just projecting this onto the conversation, but I feel like if I was listening to this and I hadn't read this really complicated essay, we would have started talking about like divine violence and stuff. And like, I think it might be helpful for listeners, but also like for me to understand why that gets introduced into the essay. So, like,
0: mm. I
4: like, I mean, I, I'm into it. I'm suddenly finding myself being like down for God talk again after about 10 years. So, you know, <laughs> I'm with it. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, but, yeah, anyway, he's, you know, we talk about the difference between positive and natural law. And then in the latter, I don't know, a third of the essay, Benjamin takes this turn to say that, like, the relationship by ends and means can't be justified by reason. This has to do with, like, a kind of sovereign law or divine violence. So God enters the picture for a particular purpose, and I think it has to do with what Gillis was, was just asking. And I don't know, because this was really hard to read <laughs>
0: Agreed. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and and again, I think many of us were being a bit experimental here. I think partially the role of God here is, you know, especially going off of what, you know, Ash was saying is that Benjamin's also offering a type of critique that, at least the way that I understand it, introduces a type of humility um, towards you know, what human action is trying to bring about. And so, whatever divine violence is, and I, you know, I'm sure we can you know, return to it, but you know, I'll, I'll take my crack at what seems to be going on here, especially after Ash helpfully said, you know, it's your know, retrospective. You don't know that you're doing it. God is, you know, a placeholder for a moment of interruption that is not because of your sort of self-direction. It isn't because of your own rational, we're going to do it. I, I actually think that's right. I'm really happy Owen said that. You know, Benjamin, it seems to me, if there is something that's clear, he's not saying wake up and just do divine violence. That, you know, there's a sense of this um, uh, inescapable <laughs> dependency, that that we have that we have to reckon with, and you know, God stands for this dependency that that we have that we do not control when this interruption will happen, when this yo know, break will happen. And if mm. we attend to that, I think that does affect our comportment towards political practices, our comportment towards the idea of we're the ones who will remake the world to our will. That is, you know, know, like the best like crack that I'm taking at that is, you know, it kind of, you know, makes you this type of humility and this important dependence of the human creature into any critique of violence. And it asks us to attend to the idea of, well, maybe it's not completely up to us to get rid of violence. And in fact, maybe the attempt to do that might bring about worse violence.
4: So are you giving like a, a, is this like a secular interpretation of it or are you kind of, or? Because, like, I I, I was or? also, yeah, mm-hmm. I was just, like, that makes sense to me. I like that answer. But, like, I also just kind of, like, thought there was a theological bent to this that, like, would also just make sense.
2: Yeah. So, uh, maybe one of the other things to say about myself before I dive into this answer um, is that I, like Benjamin, am Jewish. I grew up in, in Orthodox Jewish Milieu and studied Torah and Mishnah and Talmud a lot, and you know, and later Kabbalah and all the other things. And there's something that definitely feels to me in Benjamin to be a distinctly Jewish theological sort of orientation to the divine in a way that is super, super different from what I understand all the Jesus stuff to mean or any of the other religious <laughs> traditions. <laughs> I really don't know anything about Jesus. It's really sometimes silly.
1: He was pretty cool. Yeah. He's a good good dude.
0: We like.
2: Him. I, I hear he was a Jew. I don't know. Pretty fleshy. Um He was Jewish. <laughs> so I think to think begin to think about how the divine is operating in Benjamin's work, I think there are like a few things that are going on. So on the one hand, there's like a tradition of, let's say, very distinctly Jewish, I don't want to say secularism, but like non-God-based theology that i think is sort of subterraneanly in benjamin's work and by this i mean someone like spinoza right so you can think about the divine here in a spinozist sense as like the deus sive natura moment but i think in this sense spinoza is not an outlier right like even contemporarily there's there's so much about jewish community that is thinks of itself as secular and yet still as cohesive and sort of positioned against other kinds of religious and faith-based, faith-based traditions. And so in a certain sense, one could think about the divine here as something like, I don't know, totality maybe is like a word that can help us substitute or think about like the immensity, the, no, is immensity a word? I don't know. The the enormity, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Um, yeah, I like immensity. 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 Um, <laughs> the, like, the immense character of the world as totality and also in its imminent connection, right, that also contains something like a possibility of something outside itself, right? In this sense, like, when we speak about something like redemption, salvation, or the messianic moment that doesn't have to mean something like a christian conception of an afterlife or a heaven, but rather can be something we can think about it as like the seed of the possibility of a world constituted otherwise imminent to us in this moment, right? And i think in a certain sense that is what the divine does. The divine is the name for mm. this imminent possibility of a world completely completely otherwise. In another sense, like, and at this, at this, in the 20s in particular, right, um, Benjamin is spending a lot of time with the old buddy Gershom Scholem, who I could also say a lot about. Um, Scholem very famously becomes a Zionist to have lots of feels about that. We're anti-Zionist in this Jewish household for very obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> and anti-Zionist theologically as well as politically. That's a coda. Um, But um, Sholem very famously super interested in Kabbalah in particular. And one of the mainstays of Kabbalistic thinking is about sort of, we could call them attributes maybe, the divine attributes. And for Benjamin and for, I think, Kabbalistic Jewish thinkers more generally, we could think about, say, the attributes of humans that are made in the image of God, the divine, whatever. And those attributes are things like wisdom and justice and um, righteousness. I'm doing some rough translations here, right? It's like those divine attributes are also God, right? But those divine attributes are also present here and now and in us. So another way to think about, I think, the divine in Jewish philosophy more generally, but in Benjamin in particular, is like, what is the most what it's like the highest vision and version of humanity, the things that we really think of as laudable, we might say as sacred in human life. What's the source of that sacredness? So it's imminent, right? It's in us, but it's also somewhat beyond or outside of us because we're constantly failing to really just be that right we're human beings we're flawed we make fucked up choices we destroy the world we are living in the after effects of accumulated centuries and and millennia of structural violence and oppression and exploitation so even when we have the greatest intentions right to do just and liberatory things in the world we're never going to be like pure values right we're never like living those pure values and so the idea, Jewishly, I think, that like human beings are made in the image of God just means they're made in the image of divine attribute. And divine here is like just the things that we are, but more, or all the time, right? What would it mean to live humanity in a way that is, I don't know, uh, not based in the inescapable possibility of failure? That, I think, is another way of thinking about the divine mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Benjamin. And so what I take just to like circle this back to like why are we using the term divine violence in a certain sense it's like the violence that makes good on the possibility of an emancipated humanity right that's like an, i think a different way to name that right how are we i don't know creating a world right or the opening for a world maybe We don't actually, you know, Benjamin's very clear, we don't actually know what it looks like. But like, what is the action of creating a crack or an opening in this deeply flawed, totally fucked up world that allows for the possibility of something like the divine or the sacred to be the background condition of what it means to be alive?
0: Yeah, I love that. So there's a moment in the essay that I think you know, really hooks into this question, you know, because you're right. Possibly the way that I was answering the question, I was trying to secularize God a bit too much given the type of tradition that Benjamin is drawing upon but this notion of divine attributes. I mean, you know, Benjamin does, you know, he asks this rhetorical question, you know, does this mean that nonviolent resolution of conflict is impossible? And he says, absolutely not. You know, there are not. examples between private persons that happen every day. And so you you get this wonderful notion in Ben Yed, and he thinks, of course, he thinks it all gets a bit fucked up once it becomes objective and law attempts to make something of it. But he even names attributes kind of like where you say courtesy, sympathy, peaceableness, trust, and whatever mm-hmm. else might here be mentioned are there subjective preconditions. That uh-huh. this means that there is something essential about what we are as human creatures that you know yearns for this peaceableness and that. There are these moments, these moments that you probably can't plan, where a type of vision of society that's not simply predicated on, on violence or lawmaking and law instituting could be. But you know, these moments are often ephemeral they're transitory, but I take it the point in bringing them up is to say that what, in a strange way, what Benjamin's doing, even though there's this mysticism in here, in here is that he's not talking about something that's wholly impossible. He's not simply just you know, mm. sitting there being like, wouldn't it be great? You know, kind of like you know, the Hegelian <laughs> critique of the empty ought. He's like, no, there are these you know, strange little islands that break through in social life that says that what we are forced to live with obviously is not the only logic of social interaction that human beings can carry out the proletarian general strike yeah or the proletarian general strike yeah and so um i i I see it as trying to do the you know you're right this tricky work of saying it is us yet beyond us and so we are involved with with god if that's the name we want to give it and yet but that doesn't mean that we are holy god Uh w-h-o-l-l-y
2: totally right and so in this sense like salvation cannot come from we're like not waiting for a messiah messiah conceived as something external to us that is going to come and magically save us right in a certain yeah. sense like what this tradition has to teach us is that we have to become the messiahs we need right that's that's what it means and it, i think it's that's like a really like woo woo religious way of putting it, but I think in a certain sense that commitment is something that so many social movements in a much more secular vernacular have. Like, we have to be the people to make the changes that we need in the world because things like institutions are not coming to save us, right? And in fact, Mm. they profit and are reproduced on the basis of our misery.
3: I wanted to ask you just about how something you mentioned at the beginning and Gil described it a little bit too, but you're probably one of the most militant um, activists, ph- academics that I that I know. And so I was wondering how specifically, I mean, it's a general question about how Benjamin kind of feeds your militant praxis. And, yeah. and for those of you that don't know, like Ashley's been involved in... Our friendship was largely forged, I think, in Occupy. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we'd known each other before, but you know, you've done you've done so much since then, involved in Palestine. And I'm just wondering how, like, what what specifically, if you could, like, maybe point specifically to a couple parts of Benjamin that for you really speak to or that really feed praxis, because it's such an it's such an obscure text. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I was saying this before <laughs> when we were chatting. With, there are some texts that are obscure and you can just tell that there's nothing there and it's like a charlatan that's wasting your time. And then there's other texts that are obscure and you're like, I have to read this 20 times in, in order to in order to fill in all the associations, all to, to understand the claims that he's trying to make. So it's such an obscure text, but I guess I'm I'm curious like how some of that translates from the text into your your work as an activist.
2: Yeah. Oh, I love that question. That's so sweet. I guess the first thing to say is, like, I'm not a scholar of Benjamin. I've never, I've only published once on Benjamin. And actually, this is one of the first, like, big intellectual projects that Owen and I did together. We had to respond to that Mm -hmm. book by Andrew Benjamin that, ooh, ooh. Mm -mm. (laughs) If anyone wants to hear me and Owen drag that book, we have both published responses to it. Uh, Won't waste our time. Um, In philosophy
3: today, check it out.
2: Check it out. (laughs) (laughs) From like a million years ago. um, When we were little baby philosophers. But I, I do think about Benjamin as... You know, like sometimes there are these people who influenced your work so much that you like can't cite them because there's something about the character yeah. of the way your brain unfolds that has been so indelibly shaped by a thinker. And for me, I think about this as Benjamin for me. is like, I can't have any of my thoughts without having had an encounter with Benjamin. And yet it's like so close that it's impossible to cite. But to just like pull out maybe a couple of things that I think are useful for actual social struggle maybe in this admittedly obscure and pretty dense and complicated piece of (laughs) of, of academic writing that I love so dearly. One of the things that I've already said that I think is super important is about social movements and activists being, let's say, finally attuned to the possibility of their work creating harm right even despite all of your best intentions mm. there's this great quote by Amilcar Cabral that I really love that's about like you know like the revolution creed create is like claim no easy victories and i think there's something in benjamin mm. that is really dispositionally mm. committed to, committed to this which is like It's not don't do it. It's not retreat from the world as it is. Retreat from that violence because you're always going to fail. Like, fine, we're always going to fail. I don't care. Keep, let's keep, let's keep going. Um, That's some other
3: thinkers that we've talked about on the show, but will not mention here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I both think that, you know, the possibility of actual revolutionary change and like living in a fully emancipated society is like slim to none and also for me this does absolutely nothing to my desire nor my commitment to pursue it right like yeah it's it's probably going to fail yeah. and you know th- there's like a great quote from one of the rabbis that's like um you do not have to finish the work but neither are you f- are you free to desist from it and i think mm-hmm. it's a that's Fuck, a really that's
3: sorry that that, hit me I felt that one that that, that does hit (laughs) yeah that hits
2: there's a lot of good rabbi (laughs) wisdom I can drop (laughs) I can drop on you all (laughs) so I really take that from Benjamin I also really take, you know, my default relationship to institutions as a a kind of default position of skepticism as something I also really take from Benjamin. So even though I've been in and around the left for a long time and I'm like, you know, written books on Marxism, and I do a lot, a legitimate, a lot of activist work. I am probably more than most other activists I know, like deeply, deeply skeptical of the institutions that activists tend to build for precisely many of the reasons that I think Mm. Benjamin lays out here, um, Mm. which is that they have the tendency to unleash in their formation as institutions, similar or analogous kinds of violence to the ones that they are fighting. And I think it is very easy and I don't mean this as like a, those people are bad people or they're bad activists or they're bad thinkers. It just is so easy to be pulled into operating inside a political sphere that makes it seem as though institutionalization on, you know, on the accepted terms, right, are is the only thing that you can do in order to move society towards emancipation. Hmm. And I think we it's helpful to be critical and skeptical of that. And then I think another thing that I sort of take out, take from maybe Benjamin in my, in my work as an activist is like it is both true that we, we can't wait, right? We can't wait for someone to come save us. Like that shit's not going to magically happen. And also as much as we do harm and violence and totally fucked up things to each other, the world can be otherwise and it can be otherwise because we are capable of other things. And I don't mean that we individually, right? I mean it obviously collectively and structurally and like we can't ethics away oppression or exploitation. But I do think that there is something that so much contemporary social movement analysis and practice wants to move away from because it's like too touchy feely and too woo woo or whatever. But it's like, There's so, so much of movements are like, yeah, okay, we just need the institutions and the right rules and we need to gain power and we need to like get X number of people out to a march and we need to like settle on the correct language and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, but also like we have all been shaped in deep, intense, intellectual, psychological, emotional, relational ways by the many forms of fucked upness of this world. And we also need to transform ourselves in order to transform the world. And I think about that in Benjamin as like, what is the promise, right? Toward the end of the essay, he talks about how like, what is sacred in life is not just living. It's not mere life, right? It's not just the fact that I am alive. What is sacred in life is our ability to make real what we, you know, what I'm talking about is divine attributes, like what makes life living is the character of life. And we can, should, and need always to be doing a little bit better than we currently are. And that's why for me, I think about participation in activism and social movements, not as like doing that for me, but as like a part of a self-reflexive process where by changing the world, I'm changing myself. And by changing myself, there's also a reciprocal relationship with like, what kinds of systems and worlds we're building. And I think that really dialectical moment between, say, self and movement, I think it comes out a lot more in the later Benjamin once he makes his kind of marxist turn, but I think you can see it sort of nascent in this essay as well.
1: I like so much of all of this, but I do still have, like, I want to call them hesitations or, like, concerns, worries, um, especially insofar as, like, I mean, he characterizes this opposition between mythic and divine violence in a number of ways. But one of them is that mythic violence, right, which, you know, on Owen's sort of crude reconstruction of the binary, it does feel like it, right? Like mythic violence, bad, divine violence, good in Mm -hmm. so many ways. Um, You know, it is more complicated. Uh, But one of the ways that we cash this distinction out has to do with the way that they relate to means and ends, where like mythic violence has this... Set of presuppositions about how means and ends are going to be coordinated or reciprocally justifying, whereas, like, you know, divine violence in the form of like in a pure interruption or a pure means, right, is disarticulated from this means end logic kind of in general. Now, on the one hand, like, as you point out, like this is something that Benjamin himself says like there's this kind of undecidable character. This is something that Derrida picks up in the force of Law essay right the, the, the undecidability, both in advance and retrospectively mm-hmm. of of like a, a moment of divine violence is kind of like part of the whole deal. but like I worry, I guess like to kind of be really pragmatic and stupid, which is the level at which my brain is operating. What do we as people who actually do like you know get involved in this sort of want to get involved in actually practical movements of transformation of social interruption or what have you of political uh, organization what what is what is this uh, uh, insistence on you know not falling into a means and logic do right because i could imagine this being mm. like debilitating in a kind of way right like it's hard for me to imagine what it would look like to try to do organizational work without ends. Obviously, that seems impossible. And then, like the question then becomes like, okay, but if that relationship, if there's like you know, are there better or worse ways of articulating means and ends? Is it the means and logic itself that's problematic, and which we ought to avoid? Mm. Do you see the sort of direction I'm trying to drive at? Here? Yeah, totally. I worry. I worry that this could be a like, like you said, like you know, there's that gr- great rabbinical wisdom, but I do, I do worry about. The way in which, like this, if taken read in a certain way, could put a stop to active movement.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I see what you mean. Uh, like, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is, like, if folks are new to social movements, I'm not putting the critique of violence in front of them and being like, "Here, this is how you do revolution." I, I've got this, this great
0: come correct okay. to the left organizing yeah. space. Read this. I've
2: got and this great manual for you. <laughs> like, um, and I don't that think would Benny be funny, mean though. I don't think Benjamin no. thinks of himself as laying out a blueprint for revolutionary action right. either, right? Totally. Like, when I read this as someone who is involved in movements, like, I find reminders in it and the critical moment helpful. I have the kind of brain that over intellectualizes everything, including my own like participation in social movements. And so, like, I find the content helpful in reflecting on my own work and on movement strategy. But I definitely don't think. That what Benjamin is doing here is like, okay, all of your revolutionary programs, they're bullshit because you're like hanging out <laughs> with the mythic violence. What you got to do is you got to like lay out a seven point plan for divine violence. Right, like, right, right. you Chill know, do you know like, <laughs> yeah. I wish that would be, that would be cool. Um, I would like
3: to see that plan. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 So in a certain sense, like, I don't think that we should be thinking about divine violence as... A, an end, like how do we get social movements to the point where they're capable of doing divine violence because it's not an end, nor do I think that like divine violence is something that we can sort of use as a means because we part of what Benjamin is saying here is like you don't know if you're using it or not. Whoopsies. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's a line in this essay that I always find super provocative um, and really helpful and he says, like, look, mythic violence, this law-preserving, law, law-maintaining, law law-founding violence, is bloody power over mere life for its own sake. But divine violence is pure power over all life for the sake of the living. The first demands sacrifice and the second accepts it. And I think part of what is up here... That social movements need to be thinking about or that I find to be really helpful is that divine violence does not demand sacrifice, right? And I think so much of the way that social movements tend to operate is through sac- like through eating their own people, eating their own young. Mm. Um, and also saying like, ah, we're only taking on this like super t- t- teeny tiny little sliver of this problem over here. And everyone who falls outside of that, we're just going to sacrifice them. We like leave them to the side. We can't deal with that right now. Mm. For those of you who are interested in like what most of my work is about, like I really write about why intersectionality helps us solve this problem a little bit in social movements. Um, that's not what we're talking about here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, footnote.
2: Footnote.
1: Put a pin in that.
2: So I think in that sense, what divine violence helps us think is more, like, if we're doing social movement work, right, I think it helps us think a lot of things. But, like, in a certain sense, I think it helps us critically as, like, a negative or critical heuristic. Like, mm-hmm. it help, it gives us a set of things that if you're doing this shit, uh-uh, you are still reproducing what it is that the system requires, demands, makes you think is necessary, deludes you into believing is resistance when actually it's a reconfirmation of the deeper logic of that system, even if it results in something like a um, redistribution of power resources or whatever. And so for me, like when when I have activist brain on, I am thinking about this essay as like how to know if you're doing it wrong rather than how to know if you're doing it right
0: mm Nice. yeah Yeah. can I jump in here because you know, you know when I was reading well when I was reading and also listening to you talk I started thinking you know two, two things I know all, all four of us have been thinking a lot increasingly because it's in the air about the sort of you know the culture in left activist spaces and so when you're talking about sometimes it turns into eating you know uh, their own young over being overly punitive one thing that came to my mind which I something I thought was like really sort of liberating in reading Ben Benjamin's deeply pragmatic, is do not Come to believe that law, broadly construed, now I'm not just talking about you know things that are passed by a Parliament or the Senate, is a substitution for sociality or or relation. And I I, I think sometimes we can think that. I think we in this in this country or in that country, the United States, we like you know, pay a lot of attention to trials, especially murder trials. And you know it's you know sometimes hard to keep your you know your abolitionist principles if someone is on trial that you do not. Like for whatever reason. And you know, what I start to think you know, seems to happen is we start to think that the law can give us this flourishing human life that it, it cannot. And that doesn't mean that we can do away with law. I I, I am simply trying to say the sort of negative heuristic. Don't get it twisted that law, rules of order, discipline, they're not a substitute for those moments of courtesy, generosity, et cetera. And the second thing that I got from it that I thought was like really pragmatic is you know I find myself struggling with this as well. You, you, um, Ash, put it, you know, you know, this sort of drawback from the, you know, this is sort of woo-woo. But what theory of social transformation or liberation doesn't have some idea, some wish, some desire for a world in which our relations with one another aren't so fucked up, and to act like, yeah. oh no, we don't do that. We we just I don't I don't know <laughs> I don't know what these people are thinking because like they also seem to be passionately interested in freedom, and so it's and what you get in Benjamin is you know, this uh, idea of like what our communal common life could be with one another that you know I actually think would not be perfect yet it would not even require us to be perfect that there would be the types of virtues Mm -hmm. in which we could be imperfect Mm -hmm. with one another and that wouldn't require the coercive violence of the law to restitute that imperfectness and you know sometimes you can think well that's you know impossible but then uh, and I'm, I'm, this, I'm going to show my most woo-woo, then what the fuck is forgiveness? When someone, a concrete other person, has harmed you in some way, and you find a way of maybe not mending it back to what it was, but releasing them and yourself from that harm. And hmm. forgiveness actually happens all the time on the mundane level. Now, we might want to say, oh, we don't want to make that a structural principle. But again, the thing is, these moments of interruption happen. And why wouldn't we think that that's something that's worthwhile to pay attention to in favor of, you know, what can sometimes be the remove and alienation of institutional structures and law that we hope can substitute for um, our divine attributes?
4: Yeah, totally. I have like a tangential but like related question. It might be sound tangential but I think it's related. So I just didn't really understand in this text what the relationship was between violence and justice at like any level. Mm. So either at the level of positive law or at the level of talking about divine violence or whatever. Like at the beginning of text he I think it was like the first sentence he says there's this connection between the law and justice. And then like I kept trying to find it developed again for him to tie that Tie that loose end together, but I didn't really see it. So, it reminded me, and there, I just kind of perceived attention in the text and being able to connect the dots with justice. We're either talking about justice, or we're talking about something beyond justice, basically. I think, and like if if he's thinking about justice as primarily coinciding with positive or natural law, then um, when we start talking about divine law or divine violence, maybe we're going beyond justice. And I just wanted to ask what you all thought justice was doing in this text, because it kind of reminded me—maybe some left libs can be a little helpful for us in this moment—because it reminded me of the debate between Jerry Cohen and John Rawls, where Jerry Cohen is like, Rawls isn't talking about justice, he's talking about a way to mitigate injustice— and what you also need is an ethos, just ethos, just blah, blah, blah. So I think the libs aren't doing so bad necessarily in drying out this problem. I'm just joking. I just feel like you can be a little <laughs> down. Da- I'm, I'm not as down on liberalism as the crew, but like, I, I think it's the same problem because Rawls does respond and he concedes this point. Like he's not ignorant to the point. He does say at the end of his life, you're, what you're talking about is beyond justice. Um, hmm. and if what Benjamin is saying is true, that you have these kind of different levels of talking about violence and these kind of institutions in the state and the law are always going to have this relationship to violence, then it almost seems to me like that standstill between those figures makes sense and it might make sense in this text. And you're kind of, in, I wonder if they're incommensurable conversations or if there's like, a way to bring them together, which would be sweet. But I'm just saying it struck me that it was kind of a parallel line of argument.
2: Yeah, so Benjamin is really committed to the idea that the realm of justice, like justice only comes up in the realm of ends making, right? Ends. Ends are like where justice makes sense. At a certain point he says, what is it? Uh, Justice is the principle of all divine ends making. Meaning that like the values Toward which we strive, right? Justice comes from there. Justice is something that is not instantiatable in the same way, maybe, that like a lot of these other divine attributes are not, right? Justice is a, I don't know, an end toward which we might begin to approach but can never quite achieve in this sense, which is a totally different way than I think justice is deployed by the state and the law which thinks that, like, yeah, we can do justice whenever we want, right? Like, we do justice by coming to the correct jury trial or throwing people in jail or making monetary restitution. Like, we have this very anemic understanding of what justice can mean that is totally about calculatable balance sheets, whether monetary or -hmm. or otherwise. And I think what, um, what Benjamin is trying to say is, like, okay, some of the forms of legal philosophy that we're going to encounter you know positive and natural for example or um in the case of of you know like liberal political philosophy or even social justice activism they're going to give us a concept of justice that is really context specific and in a certain sense a very limited slice of what this like justice means in its full articulation. So we could say, like, to do justice in this or that scenario, we would have to do X, Y, or Z. But that, I think, is not really what Benjamin is pointing to in terms of, like, justice in the big sense. And for that reason, when Rawls, for example, is, like, giving a theory of justice and he gets this critique that it's a theory of injustice, you know, like, you're like, yeah, in a certain sense, like, that difference because we're talking about this world is sort of kind of six and one half a dozen in the other sort of right you can read the you can read the rawls theory either way right as a theory of justice or as a theory of injustice and it doesn't have huge it doesn't change the content in order to do that but i think for benjamin what he is trying to point toward in this kind of messianic orientation is that there is something right there is let's say a justice beyond these moments of justice that like has to be the orientation, right? We're never going to do it and we're never really going to get there, but like what divine violence is intended to do or intention maybe is a is a bad phrase there, but what it might be able to accomplish is an opening in which something like just big justice is possible.
3: I, I, I just wanted to say that I think so I guess is one way of understanding this that that justice for Benjamin has like a kind of spiritual dimension that you can't find in a kind of logical or formal presentation of justice in liberal political philosophy or elsewhere. And because I, I think that that and I think that, that I like something you said earlier. You said that what's sacred in life is not just the fact of of being alive. And I I don't think it's because we're so secularized. It's often enough that we like stop and like recognize that. That is, there is a feeling or a thought like that in us, though for those of us that are committed to, you know, emancipation, building a better world, whatever you want to call it. And I just think it's it's very hard to articulate what that is. And I would say it's ineluctably there. I think if you're honest with yourself, that you know it's there, You know it's a, that you know it informs the kinds of political visions that you have, the ideas you have, the values you have, but it's extremely hard to distill and to articulate. And that's like to me. I think part of Benjamin's philosophical enterprise, and that's why I, I feel tempted to forgive him um, for the lack of cl- for moments of like lack of clarity, because how <laughs> the f- that it's it's inc- it's both incredibly
0: real and salient, and extremely difficult to conceptually distill. Yeah, I just want to build off of that real quick because, and maybe this is just my own personal thinking, of where I, where I'm at, but I agree with that, Owen. I've been thinking a lot about you know the concept of racial justice and how the discourse of racial justice right now is so dependent on the state and bureaucracy and the vision of life of racial justice. Like, you'll know, put me on record as saying this: like the 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 best life that I envision for racial justice isn't being able to you know get every person who says a racist thing fired. It isn't, you know, like, you know, having <laughs> really? laws, you know, being used to constrain and punish individuals. But, you know, I'm, I'm not just like knocking or trying to dunk on people. I'm trying to say that if your vision of racial justice is so dependent on this one mode of organization of human life, it's really mm-hmm. hard to escape that type of idea of this is what we're striving for. Let me Mm -hmm. be clear. I am not saying we don't need, you know, reforms and laws and things that in this moment the state can only do. But what would it mean for racial justice to link into what Owen is talking about? This this thing that seems ineluctably so important to us that, you know, doesn't actually, you know, it can't be formed in a maybe precise calculative logical language. Yet that is what it seems like we want to defend in life. That, you know, we want to make life, yo know, social. And so to have racial justice completely captured by the logic of state law and discipline and to lose, I mean, at the end of the day, this is like the, the the great stuff that you are going to get from people like MLK Jr. That, you know, this is the beloved community that he's talking about. Of course, mm-hmm. like, that gets shaved off as if it's only about the laws, but don't we lose something if we can't, you know, really, like buy into this part of life, these divine attributes that we can't put in precise language, but it seems like so damn important.
4: Yeah. Let's put it on record that what's left of philosophy has taken its spiritual turn at this time <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's oh, the yeah. spiritual era, y'all but don't worry we're going to be doing a socialist calculation debate yeah so we're going to get back <laughs> to oh, yeah. but I'm uh, so yeah.
4: happy
2: I was the cause of like now <laughs> what's left of philosophy <laughs> has like gone in a spiritual Jewish messianic woo-woo direction love it
1: I'm going to wait until you leave and then I'm going to bring us back from the woo woo edge. Don't worry. We're, we're back going back to hard, hard nosed rationalism the minute <laughs> yeah. you leave. Yeah. I'm yeah, actually right. pretty <laughs>
4: into it. My most like iconoclastic um, thought, at least on the left, is like I just think people would be more religious and that religion would get weirder under socialism. Hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah.
1: Nice. I love it. I that. want to see that
4: I'm like, like I want to see it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Bring it.
4: Like, I just feel like, what are you going to do? You're not fucking miserable. And as much anyway, you can be miserable for other reasons, not the ones where, we're miserable, reasons for which we're <laughs> miserable now. Yeah, like you be might miserable. be filled with existential dread regardless. And I just feel like we'd all, like things would get even weirder. But like it Supporting. wouldn't be controlled by the Koch brothers. That would be important. Like it
1: would be, there'd be less yeah. Koch brother money flowing around.
4: Right. Like, <laughs> like, the, like, the Pro, like the Protestant church, but everywhere and really different and not controlled by, you know what I mean? Pluralism.
1: If I could, like, bring us, though, like, one last thought on, like, this idea of justice, like, it does seem like I like all of this discussion about, like, its spiritual character, like, the way in which there's something that's difficult, if not impossible, to express clearly about the character of the sacred as, like, an attribute of life that has this sort of quasi-divine character, but also, like there's like a really like secular articulation of this, I feel like in so far as like justice feels something like something like a Kantian regulative ideal, right? Like it is something like a horizon for, for any possible emancipatory movement that, that can't be reduced to the particular image or vision of justice that's, you know, invoked in this or that context, right? Like it, it provides us with a kind of, Transcendent standard. I think you're uh, right, but, but
3: that, that's the rational part of Kant. I think the part that you're pointing to is the element of enthusiasm, right? Like mm-hmm. the Kant, if I, if I try, try to find an element of political spirituality in Kant, okay, let's not make this a Kant episode, but Please I do think no. it, uh, in,
0: in, in what's that? <laughs> We've canceled him.
3: Good. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was canceled this week. Okay, never mind. I didn't say anything. Yeah, for the well, final the time. Critical race theory. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
4: We've been swinging in that one for a while.
3: I mean, it's it, it's hard. I guess the reason why I shy away from theological stuff is because I don't see, in, in some ways, Benjamin is Benjamin is like proof of this in the best and worst ways. Like I don't see, since this is a philosophy podcast, maybe it's worth saying, like it's very hard. I don't, I'm not sure what philosophy can offer to that spiritual dimension of politics. Like I think it's generated, it com- it's articulated, it's, it develops in political praxis. It might be representation representable in art right um, but sometimes i am not sure i'm not sure what philosophically i'm ever supposed to do with that dimension of not just benjamin's work but the dimension of like political uh, political spirituality and maybe that's that's uh that's fine but i do think this partly accounts for why i feel similarly to what you said ashley right that benjamin's benjamin's an important thinker for me and you know benjamin much better than i do but it's a very important thinker for me but i can't imagine ever having to write about it not because i mean both because it's very close right um, mm-hmm. in terms of influence and inspiration but also because i just i have an, i have infinite admiration for people that take that on i don't know how and maybe this is just academic philosophy i'm <laughs> speaking of and that's the problem that it's that it's restricted to a certain mode of formal presentation or something but but i can't imagine how they're
4: impoverished
3: yeah and i can't imagine how people how people do it so I don't, respect I don't all you benjaminians so, out there but
4: i don't actually
2: think it's so hard and I, I think
3: I might just be dumb.
2: No, I don't think you're dumb. I, <laughs> no, I think this is actually really a an effect of, let's say, enlightenment skepticism on philosophy and how we think about philosophy. Because on the one hand, we're taught I think that what we do philosophically is with the brain space not the heart space as if these things are mm-hmm. separable and then even when we want to critique the construction of that separation we're still only doing that from one side we're not talking about how we feel about it Ugh. even though we're saying they're not like actually different. you just different.
3: slipped in that really nice deconstructive insight you just like slipped it in on the side. You know?
2: Thanks babe <laughs> um here all week so <laughs>
3: I can't believe I just said deconstructive what's happening in this episode sorry <laughs>
2: Yes, I came to We're destroy the podcast. For Hello, the Christmas
1: episode. <laughs> That's right. Stay tuned, folks. Hanukkah. The gift is coming for Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, Christmas. I keep interrupting
3: you, <laughs> Ashley. Go ahead.
2: Okay, no. So, so on the one hand, right, I think part of what you're saying is like totally about a problem in how we think about philosophy, even when we critique how we think about philosophy. So we often complete the first step. The, what the often, often the first step is, which is the intellectual critique of the way we do philosophy, without actually practicing the end goal of that critique, mm. which is you know like, mm. right. Mm. So that that I think is like on the one hand what's happening. On the other hand, I think that part of what a very particular brand of Western secularism has given us as a society and academia more generally as a kind of culture is this idea that the that the I don't know, like the values, right, that we talk about in philosophy rationally and intellectually are somehow of a totally, completely different uh, stripe and type from things like, you know, the messianism in Benjamin. And I, I don't think we have to necessarily, I don't think that is a, a distinction that we necessarily have to take on. I think we've like then allowed secularism to define the terms of the debate in a way that I, I just fundamentally reject because like like when Spinoza's like, look, deus sive Natura," pick your favorite here. I think we can do the same with a lot of the kind of messianic impulse in Benjamin. Like, cool, you don't love the concept of divine attribute, fine. Another way to say that is like the values that you have. And we can talk about philosophical values. We know how to do that. Like, we could talk about that from the time we wake up until the time we go to sleep. Like, what are the values we should be striving for? What are the ways in which we, like, you know, are doing those values sometimes and we aren't? Like, what do we do when values kind of come into conflict with each other? These are conversations we definitely know how to have. And for me, as a, like, an atheist religious person, I think... This long tradition in Judaism of like explicitly avowedly Jewish, Mm. explicitly and avowedly atheists, right, is precisely rooted in this understanding that like once you think about structures and human beings as in a kind of historically material way, whether you want to cash that out in terms of the sacred the spiritual the messianic or whether you want to cash that out in terms of like values nature and social totality that's a that's a definitional question that's a vernacular question what makes the most sense to you what speaks to you and crucially for activists what is going to move your community more effectively that is a strategic mm-hmm. choice mm-hmm. but i don't think you actually are incapable of thinking the messianic i just think What I am calling the sacred, you talk about all the time in different terms.
1: Well, I think that's a a nice place to call it here today. Uh, We'd once again like to thank Ashley for joining us. Uh, Thank you you, you so much. Thank you. you.
2: Thank you. you. Uh,
1: Ashley, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you online and uh, about anything you've got in the works?
2: Uh, Sure. I have a website, it's ashleyborer.com, has all the things that I write about. What do I have coming out? Honestly, at this point in time, not so much. Uh, but you check out the podcast, you can check out uh, the second season of Pedagogies for Peace, where we talk about how to do radical shit in the classroom. And also, I'm writing a new book, but that won't be out for a really long time because writing books are a <laughs> slow process, y'all. It's that shit hard. is not fast.
1: Five. Cool. Well, we'll make sure that we've got links for that stuff in the episode description. Uh, new episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Jackson Zirkle, Benjamin Hewins, Eric Ron, Robin Horn, Vincent Smith, Michael Tucker, Enrique Macis, Mac Taylor, Marshall Reiner, Kieran, Nicholas Waymanen, Christopher Rowe, Elise, Megan B, Jack McGrath, Angie Rain, Kate Maddalena, Sean Oss, Marilena Marchetti, and ryan tracy thank you all very much if you too like what we're doing and want to support the show please subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com left of philosophy follow us on twitter at left to phil and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app and with that thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time thank you take care everyone. bye,
4: bye.